I'd like to have just a quick little word of prayer just before I start, if you don't mind. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again for the privilege of being in your house. Please be with me. Uh, help me present. There's nothing that I present here that's of me. It's only from your word. In the spirit of prophecy, Lord, I just pray that your message comes out clear, Lord, and that you prepare our hearts and my heart uh, for your message as well. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I do have a little bit of a head cold. I'm kind of on the end of it, but uh, I think I'll be able to get through with this. This um, sermon's entitled God's Word, and it's kind of a companion sermon of the, the last sermon I had a few weeks ago. And so I'm just, I know many of you weren't here for that. And if you're like most of us, we probably don't really remember a few sermons ago anyway. So I'm just going to just refresh your memory just a little bit about what we discussed. And then we're going to go deeper into what it means, God's word. In the last sermon that we talked about, we talked a little bit about Eve, remember? And how that when she sinned, she sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. We all aware of that. But what most people aren't aware of, actually, Eve actually sinned, we learned in the last sermon, before she actually partook of the forbidden fruit. We're told in the Patriarch and Prophets, page 53 and verse 55, that God had sent an angel to Adam and Eve, and while they were in the garden, not only while they were in the garden, they were commanded to never leave each other's side. Because in the garden, although it was a beautiful garden, it was also a place of temptation because the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil was there. And we're told in Patrick and Prophets that when Eve was in the garden, she wandered away from Adam's side, not knowing she did that. And then she became conscious that she wasn't by Adam's side. And so a decision came to her mind, right? She was at a point, a pivotal point. And she could remain in God's word by going back to Adam, his side, or she continued to go it alone. Unfortunately, Adam or Eve decided to go it alone. And when she did that, she actually stepped outside of God's word. And at that point is my belief, and I think I'll be able to show that, it was at that point when she disobeyed God by by being consciously aware that she was no longer by Adam's side, it is that point is which she actually did sin. And the fruit of that sin was not only now the commission of actually walking away from Adam's side, but now being outside of God's word. Can God protect you when you're outside of God's word? He can't protect you. So when she left the protection of God's word, she was now an open plaything for the enemy. And when she found herself gazing upon the tree of knowledge of good and evil... I mean, God couldn't help her. She already walked away and disobeyed God at that point. And she became a plaything for the enemy. And, of course, she then partook of the tree, the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil. But it's important to remember that there, where the first disobedience happened is when she realized she was by away from Adam's side and went ahead and did it anyway. Now, this reminds me of another person who kind of did the same thing. And we talked about last time about how King David, and we're all familiar with the story about well, how King David fell when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And you can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I know you're familiar with the story. How David was in his, in his kingdom, somehow up in some high part of the kingdom. And as he was looking out, he saw a very beautiful woman, Bathsheba, taking a bath on the roof. And of course, obviously, when he was looking at her, he was lusting after her. And his lusting after her 
led him to finally send one of his men over there to get Bathsheba. She came over to his kingdom or the palace, and they slept. They end up having she ended up having a, a child with King David, and eventually uh, Bathsheba was married. And so what he did is he set up her husband to be uh, in the front lines of a battle in which he was slain, so she can he could take Bathsheba to be his wife. Again, David was at a pivotal point too. When he saw Bathsheba taking a bath, there was a point at that time in his mind when he could continue to look or he could have removed himself from the situation. And of course, David did not. Now again, the question is, when did David commit sin? Was it when he actually was sleeping with Bathsheba and committed the act of adultery? Or was it when he was looking and lusting after Bathsheba? Well, according to the Bible that David actually committed the sin of adultery when he was looking at Bathsheba and committing lust in his heart. In fact, Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. You're very familiar with it. Jesus says, You have heard that it has been said of them of old time, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever, that's any of us, who looketh upon a woman with lust after her, hath committed adultery already in his heart. So there's no doubt when did David sin. He sinned when he was looking at Bathsheba with lust. And then the fruit of that sin flourished into outward actions and actually committing the act. Now let me ask you a question. If David, David um, after he was looking at Bathsheba and lusting after her, and let's say he went to send a man over her to get her, and she refused to come, and for that reason, the physical act did not happen. Did David already still commit adultery in his heart? Without a doubt, right? It's the same thing with Eve. It was the same thing with Eve. When Eve made a decision to go outside of God's word, did she already sin? Yeah, there's no doubt. So sin kind of happens in the heart first. A seed is planted, and then with that seed, it eventually manifests itself into outward actions. Um, so there's a lesson there for us. I'm sorry, my mouth is very dry because it's cold. So there's a lesson here for us, brothers and sisters, that when sin comes to us, it comes to our mind first. And we have a decision to make when it happens. It's very important that we understand that when sin comes to us, it comes to our mind in a form of a thought. And we think about that. And there's many things in the Bible that God talks about our thoughts. And there's many things in the spirit of prophecy that God tells us about our thoughts too. In fact, I'm going to read something in the spirit of prophecy. And she first quotes a scripture. It's found in Adventist Home, page 54. And we're told this. And this is, she's quoting the apostles, gird up the loins of your mind, okay? Sure it up, says the apostle. Then control your thoughts, not allowing them to have full scopes. The thoughts may be guarded and controlled by your own determined effort. Think right thoughts, and you will perform right actions. So our thoughts have a lot to do with it. Thoughts come to us in our mind. And it's at that point when it's in our mind, when we're thinking about it, when we're aware of it, it's at that point it, it makes the decision whether we sin or not. Let me ask you a question. When sin comes to your mind and you're aware of the temptation, have you sinned? No. no. It's just a temptation. 
You could never be tempted unless if the thought of what you're being tempted would you become aware of it. At that point, you have not sinned. But if you take that thought and you run with it and you let it have full scope of your mind, in that case, in God's word, according to what we read, you've committed sin already. Amen? So it's very important, brothers and sisters, please don't forget this. It's very important that when a sinful thought, a sinful suggestion comes to your mind, you need to reject it, and you need to reject it right away. Don't play with it. You're playing with death. In fact, we're told in First Mind, Character, and Personality, page 236, we're told this. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Ellen White's talking about when thoughts come to your mind. And I quote, An impure suggestion must, it must be dismissed at once. At once. And I like the word that she uses the word must. It's not something you can just, well, let me think about it. No, it must. You must happen. You must dismiss it at once. No doubt. You see, there's actually a spiritual warfare in this world, which we already know called the Great Controversy. And of course, it has to do with God's law. We know that. And it has to do whether or not we can keep God's law. We know that as well. But the spiritual warfare is not fought on any battlefield. It's fought right here in your mind. That is where the battle is fought. We are told that, again, First Mind, Character, and Personality, page 235, we are told that the mind must engage in the spiritual warfare. Every thought must be brought in captivity to the obedience of Christ. Amen? I mean, thoughts have everything to do in the spiritual warfare. It has everything to do as we walk as Christians and take on the name of Jesus Christ in this life. The Bible is very clear about on thoughts. In Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, again, a very familiar text, and I quote the scripture, As a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. So as you think, so as you, so are you. We're told that in heavenly places, page 164, we are told that, listen, if the thoughts are wrong, if the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong. So you can see that thoughts and feelings are connected, right? If you continue to have sinful thoughts, then you're going to have sinful emotions, sinful feelings. And we're told this, and I love this statement, and we're told to never forget this. Just as Adam and Eve were told never to depart from their side in the Garden of Eden, God has written this for you and me today in the last days in which we live. We are told to never forget the thoughts work out actions and repeated actions form habit and habits form character. So based on these two statements, your thoughts cause you to have what? Emotions, right? Feelings. And those feelings will lead you to what? Have actions. And then as you repeat those actions, they form habits. And as you repeat having those habits, those habits form what? Your character. Is character important in the Bible? Is character important in the plan of salvation? It is everything. In fact, the spirit of prophecy tells us exactly what character is. And this is what we're told, again, in heavenly places, Page 164 that this is what character is. Thoughts and feeling combined make up moral character. So again, your thoughts have everything to do 
with your character and who you are. It has everything to do with a spiritual warfare and a battle with sin in this world. Let me ask you a question. What is the only thing that you're going to take from this world to the next? Your body? No, that's right. It's your character. You're not taking anything. You may not take your dog, Fluffy, your cat, Snoopy. Maybe they'll go. I don't know. You may, those kids, your kids might go, but they may not. But you can't take them. If God chooses that, your pets won't be in the kingdom. I'm not saying that. Don't beat me up. I'm just saying, but if God chose that, then he, they won't be there. You can't control that. You can't take, you're not even taking your own body. These bones won't be there. The only thing that you can take is your character, and your character is made up of your thoughts and feelings. So thoughts and feelings have everything to do in the plan of salvation. In fact, in the plan of salvation, it's extremely important. We're told in Daughters of God, page 169, the perfection of character, which is our what? Thoughts and feelings, right? The perfection of character is to be the aim, the purpose of your life. And no excuse will be accepted of God as a reason for not meeting the divine standard. That's serious. So character is everything to us as Christians in this life. In fact, we're told in Christ's object lessons, I know you're very familiar with this, that Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character, which is what? Your thoughts and feelings of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come and claim them as his, as his own. Amen? So what is Christ waiting for? He is waiting for you to have proper good thoughts and feelings. And not just any thoughts and feelings. He wants you to have his thoughts and feelings. That's what he's waiting for. Amen? Amen. We're even told this, and it's well worth turning in your Bible. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Will you turn there with me? Genesis 6. In verse 5, let's read that together. Very important. You know, everything in the Bible was written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the earth are, 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 that are here. God has wrote these so we learn the lessons. Genesis, I'm sorry, I hope I said it right. Genesis 6 and verse 5. Are you there? Well, let's read it together. And then we're talking about before the flood, okay? We're talking about the antediluvian world. The world in which God destroyed, okay? Let's read this. 5 6. I'm 6 5, I'm sorry. And let's read it. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the what? Every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil what? Continually. So God destroyed those in the antediluvian world because they continually had evil and sinful thoughts. What will God do with us if we continue to allow our minds to run full scope and have sinful thoughts? Is not God? He would destroy us, right? Is God the same today, yesterday, and forever? There's no doubt. And we also must remember that when these thoughts come to our mind, that we're already told that we can control them. We already read that. It is up to you to decide what you do with that thought. And there's something that God has given every one of us, and it's called a free will. Amen? And we're told this, in Steps to Christ, page 47, that the will is the governing power in the nature of man, and everything, everything depends on the right action of the will. 
Again, what is the will? Since it's such the governing power and such that since everything depends on the right action of the will, what is the will? We're told in Child Guidance, page 209, exactly what the will is. She says that the will is, is the governing power in the nature of man, listen, bringing all other faculties under its sway. Is your thought a faculty? It is. The will is not the taste or the inclination, but it is the deciding power which, which works in the children of men unto obedience unto God or unto disobedience. You see, when the sin comes to your mind, you have a free will that God doesn't force. Satan can't force it. It's totally up to you. It's free. The only one that controls it is you. So that means when a sinful thought comes to your mind, you have free will to either obey God or to disobey God. It's up to you. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 and verse 12, we're told, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Let it not reign. For Paul to say, let it not reign, means you have a choice. Let it not reign. Don't let it stay there. And there are plenty of people in the Bible who they never let sin reign in their body. They never let a sinful thought stay in their mind. They rejected it right away. No doubt Noah was one of them. He lived in the antediluvian world, isn't that correct? So obviously Noah didn't have evil, sinful thoughts continually. In fact, the Bible says that Noah walked with God. I suggest that Noah walked by God because he stayed obedient to God's word and he stayed in the confinements of his word. Would you say amen? And you might even remember Joseph. We all know the story of Joseph, how he was taken captive in Egypt. He was taken to Egypt as a slave, but eventually through God's providence, worked him in a very high position. And you will remember what Potiphar's wife did. She desired Joseph. She lusted after Joseph. And when she was alone with Joseph, as you know, she grabbed hold of Joseph lustily. Now, Joseph was very confronted with a very sinful situation. Joseph, if he wanted, there was no doubt what she wanted, he could have committed the act of sin. But what did Joseph do? He turned and ran. And as she had a hold of his cloak or shirt, he wiggled his way out of his cloak or shirt and ran from the situation. There's a man that when a sinful thought came to his mind, he rejected it. Amen. There's a man when he saw himself in a situation that he shouldn't be, he ran from the situation. We could say the same thing of, of, uh, of uh, Daniel. Now let me ask you a, a question. So since Joseph did this, could King David have done the same thing? When David was there in a sinful situation, looking at a woman taking a bath on the roof, he could have turned around too. Now he wasn't any different than Joseph. When Eve was in a situation, when she knew, when she realized she was no longer by Adam's side, she had a choice. I can remain in God's word and return to Adam's side, or I can choose by my free will to go on my own. She had a choice. She had a choice. There's a lesson here, brothers and sisters, for you and me. There's a lesson here for you and me. God will, there'll be no excuse when we're in the kingdom or we're there on judgment day and we're lost because we chose through our will to reject God's command and continue willfully deciding to sin. Isn't that right? There's no doubt. You see, when we obey God, we are actually protected by his word. And in the last sermon, I brought up this, 
this, this text and the testimonies in the Spirit of Prophecy, volume 4, page 611. And we read this, that we're told that um, God's word is a fortress. In fact, we're told that here it is, the heart, and I quote, the heart preoccupied with the word of God is fortified against Satan. What does the word fortified mean? It means fort. And anybody knows, anybody who has an army and they build a fort, there's a wall around them. Anybody who's preoccupied with the word of God, like Joseph did, like Daniel did, is protected from sin. Did they sin? Did Joseph or Daniel sin? No. Did Noah sin in that time? Absolutely not. They were fortified. They were preoccupied with being obedient to God's word. And if David did the same thing and Eve had done the same thing, they wouldn't have sinned either. We're told in Psalms, thankfully, David finally learned his lesson. He learned that when he what he did was a terrible, horrible mistake by leaving God's word. And he tells us in Psalms, chapter 119, verse 9, 10, and 11. Now, I want you to hear what David says. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto according to the word. David finally learned. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments, from God's word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. You see, David finally learned the importance of abiding and staying within God's word. We're also told by James in the Bible, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, where uh, it says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receiving with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own soul. Amen? I mean, the word to us has got to become everything. It's got to become everything. We're told in the Bible that it is Him, the word, in Him we live and move or have our being. In fact, we're told by Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, when God's talking about living here, he's not talking about life here. He's talking about eternally. That man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, again, when Christ came to earth, he came here more than just to die on the cross. Of course, that was a key point because he needed to pay for the sins that we committed. But when Jesus came, he also came. One of the biggest reasons he came was to bring us God's word. He really did. And I'm going to read this to you. It's found in Luke chapter 8. Again, you're very familiar with this. Jesus tells this parable. And when much people were gathered together... And, and were come to him out of every city, he spoke this peril, parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed, and some fell by the wayside, and they were trodden down. And the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up, and it was choked. And others fell on the good ground, and it sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried. I love this. And when he said these things, he cried. Jesus cried out. He said, he that have ears, let him hear. Let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, what might this parable be? And then Jesus breaks it down for them. Now listen. 
Jesus says the parable is this. The seed is what? The word of God. That is the seed that Jesus came to sow. Those by the wayside are that when they hear the word of God, then cometh the devil and taketh the way, taketh the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They that are on the rock, which are they which hear the word, receive the word with joy and have no root, for which in a, for a while believe in the time of, but yet in a time of temptation they fall away, like David did, like Eve did. And they that which fell among the thorns are they which they have heard the word of God. They go forth and are choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. The fruit here is no doubt character perfection. But why don't, even though they hear the word, why doesn't the word stick? They're so, they care more about the pleasures and the worries and our jobs and whether or not I have the latest computer and the latest iPhone and whether I have a house and a picket fence and, and one boy and one girl and a dog and a cat. I mean, we're so busy chasing all these little rainbows in this world that we've neglected God's word. Let that not be so amongst us who are so blessed to have such great truths here in these last days. God's word must be everything to us. These are they that have heard the word. They keep it. And bring forth fruit with patience. Amen? Now let me ask you a question. There's no doubt that the word to us is everything. There's no doubt that in the plan of salvation, God's word should be everything. In fact, we already know who the word is, right? We're told that the word is who? It's Jesus, no doubt. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything that was made. In him the word was life. And that light was the light of men. And the light, which is the word, shineth in darkness. And the darkness comprehended it not. He, the word, was in the world. And the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. And then we're told in chapter 1 and John 1 14, and the word, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten uh, of the father, full of grace and truth. Just think about that. God sent his word to the earth to give the word to us. And I know that you're familiar, we've talked about it many times, that when you look at God's character and you look at the law, they're one and the same, right? We already know that the Bible says that God is love. We know that the law, the Bible says the law is love. We know that the Bible says that the law is righteous, and we know that the law is righteous. We know that God is perfect, the Bible says, and his law is perfect. No doubt when you see the law, you see the character of God. And when you see God, you see his character written in the Ten Commandments. You know, you can do the exact same thing with Christ and the Word. It's the same thing. We all know that bread in the Bible is a symbol of what? The Word, right? The, Bible, the word bread is a symbol for the Word. Yet Jesus tells us in John six forty eight that I am the bread of life. We all know that in the Bible we're told that they, the Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalms 119, 105. Yet Jesus tells us in John 8, 12 that he is what? The light of the world. 
We're also told in the Bible that the word is truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. Yet Jesus says, I am the truth in John 14, verse 6. Isn't that cool? You see, when you look at the word, when you read the word, you're actually in Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, you're seeing the word manifested in the flesh. You're seeing God's thoughts, how he wants you to think. You see God's thoughts, how he wants you to act. Amen? And think about it. And Jesus, who is the sower, who not only sowed the seed, he was sowing himself because he is the word. Amen? And I love this statement. I love this statement. This here we're told in John chapter 15 and verse 4. Keeping in mind that Jesus is the word. I like what Jesus says. Abide in me and I in you. Right? Abide in me and you. What does that mean? It means that we're always to abide in the word. We're told in John chapter 15 and verse 6 that Jesus says, If a man abide not in me, who is he? The word, right? If he abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Burned. Now catch this, John 15 and verse 7. Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. That is God's promise. Can you see that abiding in Christ means to abide in his word? And when you have his word abiding in you, you have Christ abiding in you. Again, I read this, uh, John chapter 15 and verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, and that's his words. It's not just the Ten Commandments. Jesus has lots to say in the entire Bible, right? He has, God has lots of words in the Bible. He says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments, his words, and abide in his love. So you can see that Jesus talking about as you abide in the word and Jesus abided in the father's word, his father abided in him. Jesus even told the Jews, I love this, it's found in John chapter 8 and verse 31, that Jesus is talking about the Jews who believed in him. Usually when you think of Jews, uh oh, those who don't, don't believe. But no, these are the Jews that actually believed in him. And then the Bible says, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, Jesus tells them, if you continue my word, then you are my disciples indeed. Amen? Again, the importance of us as we walk in this life abiding in the word and the word abiding in me. Jesus tells us in John chapter 12 and 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, Jesus the sower, the sower of the seed, has one that judges him, the word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. Right? So what's going to judge you? Jesus, when in the last days, when God judges the world, he's going to judge whether you were stayed within his word and whether his word was in you. Amen? Now let me ask you a question. If you're not walking in the word, is Jesus in you? No. If Jesus is in you, are you abiding in the word? Amen. Right? God's word has got to be more to us, brothers. It's got to become the very air we breathe. It's got to be in him I live and move and have my, my being. We're even told in John chapter 6 and verse 56 that Jesus says, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, and I love this, you hear this again, dwelleth in me and I in him. 
What is the flesh and blood of Christ? What is the flesh and blood of Christ? It is his word. There's no doubt. John, Jesus tells us in chapter 6 and 57 of John, As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which come down from heaven. We already know what bread represents. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, but he that eateth this bread shall live forever. There's no doubt that Jesus is talking about that his flesh and blood is his very word. In fact, when the disciples were confused about this, Jesus literally plainly told them what his flesh and blood is. And he tells us in John chapter 6 and verse 63, and Jesus says, listen, after he just got told him, he that eats me, eats me must eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you can have no part with me. Then Jesus tells them, listen, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You can't miss it. When we partake of God's word, we are partaking of the body of Christ because these are his words. We're told in uh, the spirit of prophecy, three selected messages, two or three, we're told this. The word of God must be read and studied with earnest desire to gain from it spiritual power. The bread of heaven must be eaten and digested that it may become part of the life. Thus we gain eternal life. Then is answered the prayer of the Savior, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy what? Thy word is truth. How do we become sanctified? Sanctification is just another word to be made holy, right? God sanctified the seventh day. It is a holy day. And God says, sanctify my people through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus tells us in John 14 and verse 23, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode or abide. And you hear this phrase, abide in me and I in you, this abiding. You hear this a lot throughout the New Testament. And every time it's tied in with God's word. In fact, we're even told in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6 that we're told in the Bible that whosoever abideth, this is his word, abideth again, it's well worth doing a, a word study just on the word abideth. You'll be amazed how many times it comes up. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6 that we're told that whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Amen? You want to hear it again? I'm going to read it to you. And Jesus says it again in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. He says it in another way, but he says it the same way. Listen. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Now, I want you to think why. For his seed, what is his seed? His word, right? Jesus came to sow the seed. For his seed remaineth in him the word of God, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So becoming born of God has everything to do, rather, his seed, his word is in you. Think about that again. If Eve would have abided in the word, she wouldn't have sinned, just like this. And why wouldn't she have sinned? Because she had God's word abiding. She was preoccupied with it in her heart, and she chose to obey it. That's not what she did, but she could have. Joseph was an example of who was a man who had God's word, his seed within him, and because of that, he didn't sin. Can you see that? Amen. You know, the Bible is more than a book. 
And I'm going to close with this statement. I know I'm throwing a lot of statements at you. There's so much I love to talk about. But I'm going to read this statement in closing, okay? This is found in uh, uh, The Faith I Live By. And I want you to think about this, that God's Word is, and this Bible is much more than just a book. It's much more than just words on a page. We're told this in the spirit of prophecy. It is one thing to treat the Bible as a book of good moral instructions. To be heeded so far as consistent with the spirit of the times and our position in the world. It is another thing to regard it as it really is. The word of the living God. The word is to be our life. The word that is to mold our actions, our words, our thoughts. To hold God's word anything less than this is to reject it. Amen? So if anything else, in recapping just a little bit what we learned, that when we sin, it comes to us in the form of a thought. And we have a decision to make something. We have a decision at that point through our free will. We have a decision to make because our wills are our decision. We can choose to abide in God's word and therefore God will abide with us. Or we can choose to reject God's word and go outside of God's word and which opens us up as a plaything for the enemy. Our thoughts have everything to do in the plan of salvation. The battlefield is right here, brothers and sisters. No matter where you go, the battlefield is right here. God will help you if you reject the sinful thought instantly. You must. Please remember that, that you must reject it instantly. You can't dwell on it. You can't think about it for an hour. Because if you do, you're going to have emotions. Emotions are going to lead to actions, right? And then if you keep doing this again and again, you're going to form a habit. And it's going to become part of your character. And what is your character? Your thoughts and feelings both combined. So the God's word is everything. Let's spend more time in God's Word. Let's remember that as we move around on this earth, this very sinful planet in which we're just inundated with sin from every angle, let's remain faithful to God by abiding in His Word and in doing so because we're abiding in His Word. Therefore, His Word, which is Himself, God, is with us and in us. Amen? Thank you, and I, I hope that you get a blessing from this, these words. Thank you.